Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn. If you're new to the show, we are in a season of unpacking American education. Be sure to scroll back on my podcast for some tips on breaking free from the system, getting started on the parent-directed journey, some interviews with new and lifelong homeschoolers, and a whole host of research that I hope will equip and inspire you for the road ahead. We've been talking about the 10 toxic traits of the public school environment, and we see these fruits evidenced in the generational beliefs and behaviors of the youngest students. The seeds that have been planted in the public school classroom are now sprouting their tragic fruit across the landscape of an entire generation. This week, as always, I've received lots of fascinating stories on the drama going on in government classrooms. On the public public school exit front today, we have a tale of two cities, or two counties in this case, San Diego County, California, and Alachua County, Florida. In California, the governor is constantly pushing for children to have their faces wrapped up all day long, muzzled, unable to fully communicate or express themselves, let alone breathe freely. The people have revolted, but the governor has held his ground. But 2,035 miles away in a county called Alachua, we see the tale of another city with a completely different response. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, has been studying, thinking critically, putting his research skills to work for the last 18 months, and he had a rather different mandate for his state. As schools were just about to reopen for fall, he said that he is intent on protecting parents' rights. Can you imagine that in California? Hold up. And that any school that forced students to wear a face covering would be subject to losing its funding. You can't make this stuff up. Chew on that for a minute. Now, wouldn't you think that schools in Alachua County would rejoice when they heard the news of freedom? No, they said, fine, keep our money. We'll draw it from the county instead. We refuse to obey our governor and we will make our students wear a mask despite what their parents or their governor wants us to do. What? The world system is spiraling out of control with a counter logic that is increasingly difficult to comprehend. If two schools operating in separate districts 2,000 miles apart are both forcing the same mandate, one with the governor's blessing and one against the governor's mandate, the issue is not a physiological one. It's a spiritual one. We are, as Dallas Willard once put it, living in an upside down world. How did we get here? What thorny, thistly path led us to these specific GPS coordinates? When I was in graduate school at Regent University, my professors did a phenomenal job of exposing us to the deep thinkers and social prophets of the day. One such author of the time was Mel Levine, who was a foremost expert in what was then the youngest generation, millennials. He predicted behaviors coming down the pike because he could tell what patterns of belief and behavior were being ingrained in these kids and how if they didn't turn in a new direction and embrace that neuroplasticity we've talked about before, their own parenting would be negatively affected by these decisions and behaviors. Levine saw that things like mommy and me cultures, constant engagement, the lack of creative outdoor play would foster this kind of groupthink that would make kids want to conform to social norms rather than think for themselves. Sound familiar? In his book, Ready or Not, Here Life Comes, 
Levine details the struggles of the youngest generations and their lack of accurate knowledge about themselves. He says that cognizance about one's background, strengths, weaknesses, tastes, inclinations, these help chart a course for what he calls the startup years. And children learn these through daily osmosis with direct or indirect teachings of parents and by comparing and contrasting themselves with others. But if a child has been in what Levine calls the victim of brain neglect, this kind of environment where specific needs of the mind were never met, then the child will have significant difficulty moving from adolescence to adulthood. And this is a common challenge we see today in what Postman called perpetual adolescence or the childified adult. This brain neglect comes, um, as, as Levine puts it, this brain neglect comes when a child grows up misunderstood or crippled because crucial capabilities were never cultivated during childhood or adolescence. Remember that scaffolding model we talked about a few weeks back? Homeschooling provides an opportunity for mentorship, for apprenticeship, scaffolding, discipleship. We can call our children up to greatness because we've dedicated time with them, intentional training. In the traditional classroom, a child spends seven hours a day trapped in somebody else's paradigm, somebody else's governance, never allowed to think or act freely outside the walls of the box in which that child is imprisoned. And we wonder why by age seven, most American boys say they hate school. You know, in working with parents, we really see two realities today, really two extremes. We have enabling parents who are fostering total and utter dependence, never empowering, never letting their children fall, living vicariously through their children's lives often. And then we also have this opposite, this increasingly prevalent and painful reality of detached parenting, of misattuned and misattached parents whose love for something else has clearly supplanted their love for being a parent. It's this strange outworking, this dichotomy of modern day authoritarian and laissez-faire parenting or distal and proximal styles of relating. Let's look at the first one. We saw this one shakedown in the college payoff schemes. Remember that? The fake sports, the fake testing, parents who would do absolutely anything to get their kids into that great quote unquote college. You know, the college with such seriously questionable ethics that they would let a kid buy his way in. Right. Insert thought emoji here. In the payoff education scandal, parents paid roughly $25 million to a group of universities between the years 2011 and 2019. Meanwhile, those universities were still running on those ethical contracts, right? To bribe coaches and university administrators to provide their children unwarranted admission to the university. They were charged, some of them were. They cried crocodile tears, and the world felt better about the colleges again, until the next round, of course. And that's not the first time we've seen corruption in the academic sector, of course. Remember when 176 Georgia teachers were indicted for changing the answers on their students' standardized tests to inflate the grades so the school would get more money, right? Remember that? We can't remove the anchor of morality from the public sphere sphere, and then expect integrity to reign. C.S. Lewis quipped, we castrate the gelding and bid it be fruitful. There's this illogical. There's one certain path to avoiding systemic corruption, and that is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, the stories are not always so overt or so dramatic. Sometimes it's simply a parent's unwillingness to face a child's behavior flaws or character flaws. 
The parent in a local private school recently went up in arms over a teacher calling her six-year-old princess to account for her behavior in class. Are you saying my child was disobedient? The mom asked with great incredulity. I mean, how dare the teacher challenge a parent's princess on her behavior? This art of protecting, of turning a blind eye, of defending crooked character, these measures will play out in unattractive ways in five years, 10 years, 20 years. And one of the most sobering realities of working with the next generation is seeing the damage done by passive permissive leadership. This trait of parental protectiveness and an inability to see wrongdoing in their children, it nurtures a spirit of narcissism and egocentrism, not to mention an unwillingness to face and correct weaknesses. And it's perhaps one of the greatest reasons that college athletics coaches tell me they deal constantly with this ego-enlarged athlete today that's un, that's that every single one of them seems to believe they're above average and should all be on the starting lineup. They're totally offended when they have to sit the bench. Freshman year in, uh, Gene Twinge points out that the youngest generations have this burgeoning level of narcissism, but she says they lack the appropriate level of empathy to balance that out. They're devoid of self-awareness that would help them develop a more realistic assessment of their strengths and weaknesses. We all have both strengths and weaknesses, and those blind spots can be very debilitating if we don't have somebody in our lives to help sharpen us, shape us. Parents have this unique opportunity, unlike any other influence in a child's life. Through our actions, our inactions, our discipline, our laziness, we will raise up and send out into the world either brats or bullies, or hopefully a better alternative, somebody else later down the road will be the recipient of our blessings or our curse. As a culture, we spend a lot of time running in circles like a hyperactive three-year-old. We go round and round with no destination in sight, using our energy for meaningless activities, trivial pursuits, cruises to nowhere. In the 1960s, parents stomped their feet at the teaching of evolution in the public school system. Has it changed? No. For the last 50 years, it's been taught as a fact every day across the United States. In the 1980s, parents stomped their feet about the pervasive teaching of sexual education that contradicted with the values of the home and the church. Has it gotten better? No, my friends, it has gotten worse, far worse. The agenda is now far more aggressive, far more perverse. You can read the grotesque standards and lesson plans for San Diego County online. It's shocking. Parents are up in arms about masks right now, and rightfully so, but really, we have to decide where we're drawing the line of what's acceptable and when we're giving up. I mean, the the topics like sex ed, evolution, perversion, the rewriting of history, critical race theory, which, as Postman described in 1991, had already been embedded in government school structures for 30 years. It just has a new name. It keeps coming around. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and getting a different result. We keep stomping our feet. (laughs) And listen, I get it. I'm an idealist. I believe people can change. Sometimes I find myself wanting to beat that same drum in the hopes that the light will come on for someone. I I want people to see the light, but the system we're working against is not human. It's not the people. It's the principalities. Why are we constantly trying to yoke ourselves with evil and think that no one will get burned? As Gatto put it, the public school system is totally unreformable. It has to be reconstructed, rebuilt from the ground up. Do we want to spend our time and energy stomping our feet in an unreformable entity like a government school? Or do we want to innovate, dream, create something new, effective, life-altering for the next generation? 
Dr. Simone Gold, who's the founder of America's Frontline Doctor, spoke at our church this week. And she's the third national speaker in a row to step onto that same stage without any provocation, turn the topic to education, and tell parents very specifically to get their kids out of traditional education and into homeschooling, Every, all three of them. In fact, Dr. Gold put it this way. She said, when people come to ask me about whether they should give their kids this vaccination or that vaccination or whether they should do this medical procedure or this medical procedure, I tell them I have just one question for them. She said, what are you doing right now to make it possible to homeschool your kids? And if they're doing nothing, she says, then I won't answer their question. Why the hard line? Because at the national level, these leaders like Candace Owens, Charlie Kirk, Dr. Simone Gold, they all see the insidious push of indoctrination in traditional education. They see it dumbing us down, creating a planet of sheep who have no ability to think critically, no ability to reason, and no ability to speak up. If you haven't read Aldous Huxley's 1932 novel, Brave New World, please add it to your reading list. It will clarify with painful lucidity precisely what's happening across the state of California and maybe your state too right now. From overly sexualized curricula to direct attempts at blocking academic accessibility, we are watching the prophetic novel play out before our eyes. In their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, lawyer Greg Lukanoff and Professor Jonathan Haidt write about their observations of the great untruths, as they call them, being taught across college campuses in the United States. Untruths that are harming students and setting them up for failure, telling them to trust their feelings, to avoid discomfort, to encase themselves in proverbial bubble wrap, to avoid the wounds of the world. The authors saw this trend happening in classrooms across America where students felt their, quote, mental health would be jeopardized if they were, quote, triggered or, quote, feel unsafe. Discomfort, as they put it, became categorized as a medical response. Students started claiming that they would be unable to function if they had to listen to certain topics, especially topics they, oh no, disagreed with. If that didn't clue us all in that something was wrong, the wave of colleges with Play-Doh and puppy rooms, the coloring rooms and bubble rooms designed to help fragile 19-year-olds process the trauma of hearing a different opinion should have flipped on the light for us. Now, I spent most of my 20 years of education in the private school environment, but even there, the markers existed. Parents would call me to tell me their child would not be able to give a speech in front of the class because she might pass out from nervousness, oh no, or being asked not to post articles from the Institute for Creation Research because it might trigger someone if I dared to suggest in a Christian institution that the Genesis account is historical fact not making this up. 20 years of classroom teaching and conversations with parents and students led me to today's topic, how to make a snowflake. First, a little background on the keyword there, snowflake. Before the coddling of the American Mind book hit the streets, former college president Everett Piper saw the wave coming and he wrote the letter that sent the word snowflake soaring to its viral status. Piper's 2015 letter, called This Is Not a Daycare, It's a University, tells the story of a student who felt victimized by a sermon at the university chapel because the speaker used the word divorce, and that word made the student feel terribly unsafe and uncomfortable. When the student complained about this, Piper called him out, as well as any colleague who might be tempted to bemoan the message, calling them to account for their childishness, their selfishness, their narcissism, and their unwillingness to engage in authentic discourse. We're not comfortable with the discomfort, Piper later told Today reporter Megan Mulhan. As a culture, he said, we raised a generation that cherishes comfort more than freedom. It's not a surprise to see such immaturity and selfishness in our students when we've been perpetuating immaturity and selfishness for decades, he said. A generation that cherishes comfort more than freedom. So true. 
Isaiah 38, 8 through 11 says, now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that may be for a time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, do not see to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. This pattern of rebellion bound up in the heart of mankind is evidenced when we crave smooth talk instead of the truth, flattery instead of facts. Parents, training up our children and making disciples means there must be difficult conversations. There must be discipline, root word equals disciple. There must be truth that refuses to coddle sin. Little offenses may seem benign in the moment, but in just a few years, these seemingly benign character flaws will yield a harvest that can twist a city, a state, a nation. May we not be a generation who says to the seers, do not see, a generation that drowns out the voice of the prophets and longs for the voice of sugar-coated fluff. Let's be a generation that embraces the truth, the life, the way, the hope of the world. As we've talked about in past shows, because humans are wired for relationships, our social realms have significant influence on our lives. So as leaders, as parents, as industry disruptors, we have to work to create healthy community and resilient mindsets in those within our realm of influence. Having what is called a safe haven or a safe, secure base, as Bowlby called it in 1944, gives people a sense of confidence. And many of our youngest generations have not grown up with that sense of safety or connection. Vanderkolk says, over the last five decades, research has firmly established this idea that having a safe haven promotes self-reliance and instills a sense of sympathy and helpfulness to others in distress. In fact, these skills are paramount in helping younger workers get in sync with the needs of others. They learn self-awareness, empathy, impulse control, and self-made motivation that make it possible to become contributing members of the larger social culture. That's the opposite of what Dr. Piper was seeing in his chapel services. So parents play a key role in the creation of resilience. Listen, simply by being present in the child's life. Deadbeat dads, that one's for you. But the dramatic decline of resilience in the youngest generation tells us that something is missing. 20 years ago, former Washington Post author Pete Hamill wondered aloud in his essay, Crack in the Box, whether television addiction in the young mirrored drug addiction in adulthood and whether there was a relationship between the two. As neuroscience later proved, it did, it does, there is. Following in the footsteps of educational prophets like Neil Postman, Aldous Huxley, Mel Levine, I too have wondered in that same way whether the Dopamine-driven behaviors of social media's incessant vying for vain approval have left a generation of narcissists unable to attach to anything meaningful, or whether, as Drs. Bush and McElhaney has posited in the book Hooked, that the casual sex culture has unleashed this massive stickyless sticky tape, leaving behind this unanchored, unmoored generation who fails to commit to healthy adult attachments. We see it all around us all the time. The emotional health stats on our youngest generations are sobering. The National Alliance on Mental Illness said in 2015 that there was a crisis of mental health on college campuses in the U.S. Five million students dealing with anxiety, depression, related issues, that the second leading killer for college students is suicide. The Chronicle of Higher Education called Prozac campuses, saying that today's students have an overwhelming need to seem flawless, that they're uncomfortable with anyone, even close friends, knowing that they have flaws or frailties, that they're living in the social media transplanted life of this, this paralyzing perfectionism. Now, it's not that college students are experiencing new pressures, you know, 
College has always been known for its high pressure environment, but what's different today, researchers say, is the level of efficacy. Today's young adults do not have the same markers of resilience as that of previous generations. They don't know how to push through the struggles of life. They don't know how to climb back up when they're thrown off the horse. And researchers attribute this deficiency and current lack of problem solving skills to childhood environments where they were not allowed to fail. They were not allowed to go home without a trophy. If they just tried, they were rewarded mediocrity rather than excellence became the expected norm. So they simply have not developed the stick to that's needed to persevere through life's challenges. They don't want you to know that though. Stanford University professors coined the term duck syndrome, which we've talked about on the show before, where you see that duck gliding along smoothly in the water and his feet are going crazy underneath. And that's the great picture of the the youngest generation that wants to appear like they've got it all together, but they're really, they're really stressing out under the surface. Now, we may not have been part of the problem, but we can still endeavor to be part of the solution. As friends, as coworkers, as parents, as employers, we can be conduits of hope and healing around them. And we might do well to develop some resilience ourselves. You know, if you're leaving California to find gold somewhere else, that may not be the most courageous course of action. We can't outrun the rapture. Listen, no one knows the hour, obviously, but we know the hour is coming. If we're literally living in the book of Revelations right now, we actually might want to man up a little bit. Maybe read some missionary biographies. Maybe read Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies. Maybe find some sure footing for your faith because even though we don't know for sure when the day is coming, we know for sure that the day is coming. If we raise a generation of snowflakes, they're going to melt when trouble comes. But if we raise a generation of champions, they will stand strong and hold back the wave of darkness that is rushing over our nation. And isn't that our goal? When we've done all we can do, we will stand and stand strong. It's our responsibility to speak life and purpose, to inject courage and hope into the next generation. We're going to talk more about the topic of making snowflakes next week, so be sure to join us. If you're new to the show or if you're homeschooling for the first time, you can hear repost of my K-Praise radio show, Mindset Matters, on my weekly podcast, The Communication Architect. Just go to Spotify or iTunes and search the title. And be sure to check out what we're accomplishing in and through our church partnerships with parents right here in San Diego. Visit us at awakenacademysday.com and cvcu.us. You'll find some helpful tools for support, community, and engagement. And if you're a pastor in San Diego County, please DM me for help on getting your church active in the homeschool support realm. It is our responsibility as believers to make the needed sacrifices right now to steward and guide the next generation of champions for the kingdom of God. Let's say no to snowflakes and raise up a generation of winners instead. See you next week. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode, or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.